The following program is a podcast1.com production. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our web address, Clark.com. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. Coming up in 20 minutes, so much talk about the health care law changes in Washington. But what about when you go to the hospital, there's a change taking place that's going to make hospitals more dangerous for you when you go for care. I'm going to tell you about that in today's Clark Regis moment. And coming up a half hour from now, I keep hearing from people that are buying real estate because they want to be landlords. I've got some special rules of mine you need to be aware of when you're thinking you want to be someone who is an investor in real estate that you don't actually live in. Right now, I want to talk about a real danger that you need to consider if you have kids that you're expecting to go to college or you have kids in college. Listen to this. New report out that the number of people defaulting on their student loans is 3,000 people a day Every single day of the year. This is an unbelievable number of people who are defaulting. That's the number that are at least nine months behind on their student loans. Eight million people are currently in default on their student loans. And this is not because... People are irresponsible with their finances, although there could be occasionally somebody that's the issue. Instead, it's the raw number of dollars that people are borrowing to get through school. Parents borrowing on behalf of their kids, kids borrowing on behalf of themselves, grandparents borrowing on behalf of grandkids. We're creating a level of debt that exceeds virtually every other kind of debt in the country, $1.3 trillion, 42 million Americans, according to the newest federal data, 42 million have student loans. This is serious stuff. So as far as people who already have outstanding student loan debt, you hear me take those calls all the time. I talk about the things you need to do to try to make those loans more manageable. But I want you, if you have kids coming up, or you yourself are responsible for paying for your own education, please learn this. And my school, not the school of hard knocks. I told a story recently on the air about a young lady I met who had been accepted at Stanford University, which is by many people recognized as the best university in the United States, if not in the top three. And 
it's such a privilege to be accepted at Stanford. On the other hand, she got accepted at a very bright young lady, got accepted at a number of other schools where she was offered 100% scholarships for four years. She ended up taking the full free ride somewhere else and let the Stanford opportunity go, where she would have had accumulated student loan debt of likely somewhere between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars to get her undergraduate degree. She explained to me that she was from a blue collar family and that there would not be any help available from her family. This would have all been on her. And she, at 18 years old, had to make a decision that anytime somebody knew she was accepted at Stanford, they'd gasp because that is such a rare opportunity. But she made the right decision, in my opinion. She made the right decision. Going to a more affordable educational opportunity is the better option than going heavily into debt. The difference it makes to have your hands financially tied behind your back for maybe the next 20 to 30 years taking on an enormous debt burden versus graduating like she is graduating without one penny of debt is a preferable option. And I hear over and over again from parents that they feel they're supposed to be the equivalent of a Disney mom or dad for college. That their kid wants to go to some whatever school. Well, that's unfortunate because you're going to create a burden for yourself. Unless you're incredibly wealthy, you're creating a burden that affects the rest of your life without necessarily any additional benefit for your son or daughter going to a more affordable place. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Our web address, clark.com. When you got a question for me, go clark.com slash ask. Kevin is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking me on the show. Certainly glad to have you here. You are retired at a very good age. I was fortunate enough to retire from the federal government as a law enforcement officer, which has an early retirement program. Well, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you very much. How Um, can I be of service to you now that you're retired? Well, um, although I am retired from the federal government, I do have another job. And um, as a regular listener to your program, I I know you believe that the thrift savings plan – is uh, one of the best retirement plans out there. No, is and I, let me change that. It is the best retirement plan out there. Okay. Um, I have um, a fairly significant amount in the thrift savings plan, but between the amount of money that I make with my pension and the salary for my new job, um, my wife and I don't anticipate needing the money from the thrift savings plan for several years, if ever. Um, 
So our question is, um, our financial advisor, who we have, have had for years and, and trust him a great deal, um, has suggested that um, he can make more than make up for the extra fees um, that would it would cost um, to convert the money to an IRA um, based on the potential return he can get from the other investment options once it becomes an IRA. And I'm... I'm not sure that I want to do that, and I wanted to get your opinion as to whether that would be a good idea. Well, I respectfully but very strongly disagree. In fact, I intensely disagree with the financial planner you've consulted on this. Because the Thrift Savings Plan, and for people who aren't aware of what that is, let me explain that for a second, Kevin. Thrift Savings Plan is available to federal workers and uh, federal military personnel and it is the equivalent for a federal worker or a soldier of a 401k plan, but much, much, much better than a 401k plan in that it has expenses that you pay that are microscopic, basically no expense for your money being invested in the thrift savings plan. The ability for a professional to outperform the thrift savings plan with making good choices of investing that would be overwhelmingly superior to what's in the thrift savings plan would be almost mathematically impossible. Okay. So since you are in good shape financially, you can live off the pension and the work you're doing now, the best course of action is to leave the TSP money aside. Just leave it in the plan and know that it's growing for the future the most efficiently that anybody's ever had access to in a retirement plan. It would be like taking perfection and saying you could perfect it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your help. I appreciate it. Sure. And again, thank you for your service. Constance is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Constance. How are you? How are you, Clark? Great. Thank you. How can I serve you? Well, um, I have a financial planner. I'm... um retired, a widow, 72 years old, and I have investments. Um, I pay um, service fees, management fees, almost $2,000. And I've been deliberating whether or not I should go with Vanguard. Um, I know their management fees are very low. And I talked to my financial planner, and he said I could do indexed with him, but it would only lower the the uh, management fee, a uh, half a percent. So instead of paying one and a half, I'd be paying one percent. Wow, you're paying one and a half percent for the management of your money. Right. That's a big haircut on your money for retirement. Well, it is. And I saw a program, and I don't remember if it was 60 Minutes, but um, that's what they were doing. They were showing um, salaries, people who had investments, and how much money that they were paying for management fees. And that was the spark for me. And I don't know anything about Vanguard, although my son-in-law, this is going to sound strange, he's a financial planner. But, you know, I didn't want to, I I had a financial planner, and I didn't want to use my son-in-law because of family, not because of him. He's the best. But my daughter, you know, and also I didn't want to have him feel responsible if the market wasn't doing well. You know, just um, 
Well, that is very sweet of you that you wouldn't want him to feel pressured that uh, that he's hurting you in some way with the choices he's making. Right. So that was my main concern. So does he know that's why you're not using him? Yes. Oh, I told him. Not only that, but then my daughter, uh, you know, she's, she gets nervous about my, my money. <laughs> and will I have enough? Well, what if, what if you ask your son-in-law, because you, you respect him. Right, I do. Why don't you ask him how he feels about you moving from the 1.5% financial planner you're with now to Vanguard, where you'd pay typically like one-fifth of 1%. I mean, right from, from... He's already stated that he said they're one of the largest investment firms in the country, and a very good one. Um, so, okay, then ask your son-in-law to do this for you. If okay. you move the money to Vanguard, just ask okay. your son-in-law where he'd put it. Oh, all right. And then he's doing a, a family favor for you. I understand. The only thing is, he said it's all through uh, the Internet. There's no personal contact like the financial planner I have now. That's but true. Not, but he said, I'm willing to bet that the guy that you have He's not going to do anything different than what Vanguard would do. So you have your son-in-law saying it would be a good move for you to move your money from a 1.5% person to Vanguard's like nearly no cost. Right. And then you have the family benefit that he can say, well, I think you should put your money in these Vanguard funds, Mm -hmm. and he's going to do that for you because he's married to your daughter. So then you get the best of all possible worlds. In certain careers, certain professions... There's a tradition to haze people who are new in it, and that's fine, except when it puts your and my life in danger, as it does in today's Clark Rages moment. Scams, rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Rages moment. We got to talk. Do you know that behind your and my backs... Doctors have decided that they are going to nearly double the shift times for new doctors, internists, and residents from working a double 16 hours a day to as much as, what would you call this? It's more than a triple, to working 28 hours consecutive hours now already making doctors work a double who are new doctors and getting to a point where they're bleary-eyed is callous and disregards your and my health and safety but there's this attitude among doctors well i had to do it when i was coming up why would we make it easy for new doctors today that is absolutely, completely clark Rages. I ask you, how are, do you function? How would you function? Because none of us actually generally would work those kind of hours. 28 hours straight on the job? 28 hours on the job? I would be completely non-functional. So how do you like the idea if you're in a hospital 
in a life and death situation and the new doctor seeing you is in, let's say, the 25th, 26th, 27th hour of his or her shift, this is absolutely outrageous. And I ask doctors to rethink this. You know, you may look back and say, well, it wasn't so bad for me. I was able to do it. They should be able to do it. What about the customers, the patients, the human beings whose lives you're playing roulette with, with a 28-hour shift? Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust, someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. I'm glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our website. You look for deals at clarkdeals.com. When you have a question for me, clark.com slash ask. Speaking of ask, I get questions every single day of my life as I wander around from people that are interested in being real estate investors. It is something that has become as popular again as it was mid-last decade before the real estate bust, but without the frenzy attached to it then. And people are looking to buy real estate that they would hold and rent out But one thing I want to make as clear as I can, I addressed this last year, and it's only become more urgent since I did so last year. If you were considering buying real estate as an investment, you're going to buy a home, you're going to buy a condo, you're going to buy a resort property, whatever. If your business model, your business case for making the numbers work is for you doing nightly rentals on Airbnb or VRBO or HomeAway, you need to know that there is a strong movement going on worldwide, worldwide, in cities and resort areas, lakes, beach areas, whatever, to ban what are referred to as short-term rentals. I'm seeing this happen In a lot of areas of Florida, there's a building, well, actually, it's a series of buildings on the east coast of Florida that I became aware of because somebody was complaining to me about it that had allowed rentals of three nights or more, and the rules were just changed 
and the shortest rental permitted is one month. And the person complaining to me had been in a position where they were making a lot of money using Airbnb to rent out their condo. And the rent they can get for it on a monthly or more basis, the numbers just don't work. It doesn't generate enough money to cover their carry costs on the place where it works so well on a nightly rental basis. So I need for you to know that if you were looking at buying real estate and the numbers will not generate positive cash flow on a multi-month rental basis where you rent seasonally or rent for multiple months or six months at a time or whatever, if those numbers don't work, then you can't buy the property if your entire math is based on you being able to make it work on a nightly rental basis or even a one-week-at-a-time rental basis. Because the hostility from community boards, from local governments against transients, the momentum is so strong against right now that you don't want to get yourself in a position where you own a place, you have to keep paying for it, but you can't generate enough cash to handle the payments. Andy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Andy. Hello, Clark. So how can I serve you? Well, I have a friend that has uh, had a bad divorce and lost a house and, and lost a job and ended up with some, a lot of credit card debt. It's been about five years now. And I was curious what the uh, statute of limitations for that is. Well, it varies by state. Usually credit card debt in most states will be somewhere in the range of three or four years. And that's the time period against which somebody can be sued against the debt, but that it stays on the credit for seven years. What state was this person in? In In Georgia. In Georgia. Okay, we'll look up the statute for you. For Georgia, I think Georgia's a four-year, but we'll see on credit card. Yeah, four years Okay, on the credit card debt. So, so what will happen is that the, the credit card companies, the banks that had that debt, will at some point sell it to collection agencies that will be very aggressive about attempting to collect the debt from your friend. That's already happened, yeah. So the rules of the road are this. If your friend pays anything on that debt, it may be considered to be a refreshing of the date. They may ask, hey, can you send us $10 this month or whatever? The answer is no, because any money paid may be interpreted as waiving his rights under the statute of limitations as the period of time that the debt is collectible through a court action. Yeah, okay. Uh, In terms of the credit, in two more years, those debts disappear. However, that does not mean that a collector cannot, at any point for years or decades to come, contact him attempting to collect the debt. They have no right to go to court, and they can't put it on his credit at that point. But... What he would have to do is, if a collector contacts him, let's say, 10 years out or whatever, is he can 
notify them that they're not allowed to contact him further about the debt. Okay. On the other hand, if he gets really solidly back on his feet and would like it sometime to pay an unpaid debt, no money can ever leave his hands until he has a written agreement that payment of whatever number of dollars it is that they agree to will be payment in full. And until he has a written agreement to that effect, he cannot give any money over. Yeah, so you don't want to pay anything partial. It's going to be for to settle the debt completely. Right. Okay, good. But again, uh, you know, right now, your friend needs to just be working, Andy, on getting back on his feet financially, yeah. getting as solid as he can, and he gets financially healthy, then, of course, it'd be great if he could pay debts, even though they have no legal claim in court, probably at this point. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Clark. We appreciate your service. Thank you. Best to you and your friend. Shane's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Shane. Hey, Mr. Howard. How are you doing today? Sir? Oh, Shane, you just broke a key rule of the Clark Howard Show. Do you know what that is? Uh, I believe it is calling you Mr. Howard. I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yes, so just it's... call me Clark. You'll be Shane. Okay. I'll be Clark. How about that? That uh, sounds good, sir. Okay. So uh, you have a, a twister of a question for me. Yes, sir, I do. Uh, I was talking to uh, our insurance agent last week, and I was calling regarding getting some information on 30-year life uh, term life insurance. Um, and she brought up the fact, I believe it's called, um, she was saying another option that we had would be return on premium insurance, I think. Uh, she said it's about double the price of term, but uh, unlike term life insurance where you get nothing back at the end of 30 years, uh, you actually get all your investment back. Is that, does that sound about right? That is what you were told by the salesperson is 100% true. So okay. the benefit of buying a 30-year level term insurance policy where you pay extra, but if you, as would be expected, you live through the 30 years, they give you back all the money, which is generally under most of the plans an equivalent return on your money of about 6% a year. And nobody can go out and earn a guaranteed 6% anywhere else. If you were to pass away in the 30 years, you're not going to worry that you paid too much for the premiums. And if you, like most people, live the full 30 years, you get back everything you paid, which has that effective equivalent benefit of roughly 6%. Now, Let me tell you why that may not be as good as it sounds. Okay. The percent of people who keep a level term insurance policy in place for all 30 years is teensy tiny. I don't know if it's 15%, 7%. Very few people make it through the whole 30 years. Not because they die, but because they uh, they may let it lapse or more often there may be a better term life policy that may come along at a later date. Okay. So you would have paid in the extra for no practical purpose or benefit. Okay, so, so if you were to switch over to like a whole life, say... Well, I wouldn't want you to do that normally, but there may be, let's say, competitive conditions or whatever, there may be a better deal on a term life policy, even though you're a few years older, three, four, five years from now. 
Okay. So it'd be worth it for you to dump what you have and get the new one. Or maybe there's not a better one. You'd want to keep that in place. But you lose some of that flexibility when you buy the twice the premium policy, hoping that 30 years from now, you'll get all that money back. So that's why even though on the face of it, it sounds like a good thing, it's not a bad thing, but it's not a practical thing for most people. Got you. Well, good deal. Well, yep, that's what I was calling about. I didn't know. It sounded pretty good, but I wanted to run it by you before uh, I talked to her again um, later this week. Well, pretty good is the right answer. Not good enough would be the total answer to go ahead and pay double the freight. I'd pass on that. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Joe. Hey, Clark. I'm going to try and be real concise and see if I could possibly work in two items. First okay. one, very simple. Uh, receiving a lump sum payout instead of receiving this old school pension that I got from a job I had in the 80s and 90s. And two, You are or you're know, thinking of it? Yes, I am. I, I believe, I, I believe I'm, uh, it's inevitable at this point. How come you have to take the lump sum? What's that? How come you have to take the lump sum? Well, it's just they're offering it me today. Now, I I just, I've heard so much about old school pensions that I wonder whether the company's still going to be in place in 10 years from now when I decide to start tapping into it. So I'm thinking, you know what, maybe I should. Is yours a single employer provided pension? Or is it something that's a multi-employer union kind of plan? It's an old-school single-employer thing. If it's an old-school single-employer, because you have the backstop of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, for most people, you'll be better served, uh, and this is not a 100% case, but I want you to lean towards, err towards the side of thinking about taking the monthly payout for the rest of your life. Okay, and then if and if I go the other way, what's the best way to deal with that? Well, generally, you will not be able to produce an income level near what you would get from the pension. Here's how I'd like you to figure out which to do. There's a product called an immediate annuity, which you can take the lump sum from the pension plan, and you can throw it into an immediate annuity, and they'll be able to tell you based on your state, and your age, what they'll be able to generate for you per month for the rest of your life. And if you go to immediateannuities.com, you'll be able to see what you'll be able to generate per month. If you can generate more from an immediate annuity, go that route. If you can't, on the other hand, stick with the pension payout from the pension plan. Okay. You had a second question for me. Tell me about that. Yes. When a company calls me claiming to represent and saying that they're, that I, I need to make payments to them for my student loan, which I've done, um, I know that I've had tax money, pay, I've had tax refunds denied to pay for my student loan. I've had a company that took money from me for about a year and a half. And I really don't know whether that real money really went towards paying off my student loan or not. How can I possibly find out whether somebody claiming to to take payments for those things is really doing so, and where can I find out whether my government my tax refund also went into paying off my student loan? The thing should be paid off by now, five thousand dollars or so. 
I understand, and and this is a constant problem with the student loan collectors, is they're not accountable, and the monies collected could be far in excess of whatever was owed on student loans, including interest and penalties. So when somebody comes and seizes your tax refund, they're not providing you any documentation at all about loan records, payments, or anything else. They just present to the IRS, and then your refund is seized. That's how it works, right? No due process. Good point. So you want due process. You want to know what's actually going on with your loan. So have you contacted a student loan counselor at the U.S. Department of Education? No. That's where I'd like you to go. If you go to ed.gov... There are, uh, there are sections for borrowers, and there are people who, in theory, you can talk to when you've had a problem with a defaulted loan. Because right now, particularly if you have a private loan, there is no automatic requirement that there be any documentation of the amount owed or the money being seized from you. And you've got to stand up for yourself and get to the bottom of what your balance was, what's been paid, and what it should be. Because if you're passive, they're just going to keep taking, taking, taking from you till your last breath. You know, you got a question for me, you can post it to an Ask Clark on Clark.com. And then we take them right here on the air. And, Joel, who's the first Ask Clark you got? Clark, this one's from Murphy. He says, is there any benefit to paying your home insurance and yearly real estate taxes separately from your mortgage? Yes. Because when you escrow, and typically you have a mortgage, you're going to be required to escrow, you're having to prepay. And for the lender, the purpose originally was supposedly to make sure that you had sufficient funds to pay your property taxes, and in your insurance. But it's really just become a profit center for lenders because they don't pay interest on your escrow. They have an incentive to over-escrow, so they collect additional money that they're earning money on your money. Right now, not much incentive for the lender, though, because interest rates are so low that they can earn on your money. And not much incentive right now either for you to not escrow because... Well, you can't earn much on your money, but in a normal environment, which hopefully we'll be getting to again, you paying your own taxes and insurance would be to your advantage. Generally, lenders, though, are going to require you to escrow with them or pay a higher interest rate or some form of fee to replace their lost income. So if you're given the option to not escrow, and you're good at saving money and budgeting, yes, you are better off paying your own taxes, paying your own homeowner's insurance premium each year. On the other hand, if you're not a great saver, it is a method of forced savings, so you make sure you always have the money needed to pay your taxes and your insurance. If you're wondering how to get the funding needed to run a small business today, Cabbage has the answer. Cabbage helps small business owners access simple and flexible funding right away without the headaches that come with applying for a traditional loan. 
You can apply online or from your phone by securely linking your business information to get an automatic decision. There's no waiting in line. There's no scanning documents or tracking down financial statements. Cabbage gives you the flexibility to decide what's best for your business. And once you're approved, you choose when to use your funds and how much you're going to take. You only pay for the funds that you actually use. Cabbage has supported over 100,000 small businesses with $2.9 billion in funding already. Visit cabbage.com save. There's no cost to apply or set up your line of credit. And just for listening to this podcast, when you qualify for funding, you'll get a $100 Visa gift card that you can use anywhere. That's cabbage with a K. K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash save. You know, when you're a kid, there are a lot of things that you think exist. Unicorns, dragons, mermaids, you name it. When you're a kid, it's real. But when you find out later that they don't, well, it's kind of disappointing. Of course, as you get older, you get over the disappointment. But when you're looking to buy a car, there's nothing worse than finding the one of your dreams online. And then you find out later... It doesn't really exist. It's not true. That's why at TrueCar, they show you real pricing on actual inventory. This isn't pricing offered to you by TrueCar. It's an actual VIN-based price from a TrueCar certified dealer in your area. Real prices. And these aren't just any dealers either. TrueCar certified dealers are a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency. They offer competitive prices and a faster, easier buying experience for you. It's a fact. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with the True Car certified dealers. And, on average, they save over $3,000 off the MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that dream car, visit True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. It's great that you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where we empower each other with knowledge so that you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. You can follow me at facebook.com slash clarkhoward. Clark.com is our website. When you're looking for deals, clarkdeals.com. And speaking of deals, music is becoming a better and better deal for you I've got info on that coming your way in 30 minutes. I want to talk right now about something that I found on a job-seeking blog about what are the things that you really have to be ready for when you're going in for an interview. We're at a time that what's known as velocity is picking up in the job market. People are more likely now to quit the job they're in so his quit rate and go seek other employment because people are more confident that opportunities out there but you may be stale in interviewing for a job and so there are certain things that it's like employer 101 that they'll ask people one of the ones that is so commonly asked is one that really trips people up what are you not good at what do you would say is your worst weakness? What would you say other people say that they don't like about you? Any version of that to throw you off balance is a common tactic of somebody interviewing you for a job. They want to see how quick you are on your feet, what kind of humility you have, what kind of self-confidence you have, because you can be both humble and have self-confidence. 
And they also want to see how truthful you are. So you don't say something like, well, my greatest weakness is I work too much. I'm too dedicated to my employer. Yeah, right. It's not going to work. So really think through how to genuinely express what areas you feel like you need to improve in or that you are working on the things you've done to improve an area of weakness. And you know somebody's going to ask you about why you left a past job. And people will try to finesse that. But, you know, so many people in the last 10 years suffered layoffs that there's nothing wrong with saying, I got laid off, and at the same time, say nice things about where you used to work. Say, I'm so glad that they've recovered from tough times at blah, blah, blah company. And I loved working there, and they were really good to me. But economic conditions required that they lay people off, and I was one of those people. I mean, you you say things that show warmth, no bitterness, positive energy, and what you'll hear from me over and over again, regardless of what questions I'd hit you with, is all about, no matter what they ask, that you were genuine, but positive at the same time, and honest. Because people hire people. And if they read that you're being deceptive, it's going to blow your chances to get that job. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Our web address, clark.com. When you got a question for me, go clark.com slash ask. Thomas is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Thomas. Hello, Clark Howard. Thank you for taking my call. Well, great to have you here. And Thomas, you want to quiz me about credit freeze. Yes, please. I've heard about it. I've heard you talk about it. I'm not sure that I understand exactly what it is, and I'm especially curious exactly who does it. Okay, so what a credit freeze is, is it's a process where you register yourself with the three major credit bureaus, which are Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. And you have to do each one separately. And then what happens is when you register yourself, you're issued a secret code that only you and the credit bureau know that if you need to apply for credit somewhere, without your secret code, no credit application can be processed. So it's a way, you know, most often when our identity is stolen, Somebody goes out there and they pretend to be us, Thomas. We don't know they're doing it till the bills show up or the bill collectors start calling or our credit's ruined. So with credit freeze, even if somebody knows everything about you, well, not everything, but they know everything they need to apply for credit as if they're you, they don't know your secret code, so they're shut down. And so this is you doing all the work. Not it's not like a credit uh, protection company. Exactly. It's, it's you, you put the them. you register. You do it online. You register 
that you want to credit freeze with each of the three bureaus, total time to set it up is about 15 minutes. And then you pay a one-time fee to freeze your credit. Some states it's nothing. The most it is in any state is a total of $30. But usually it'll be somewhere between nothing and 30 about 15 bucks. And you set up the freeze, and then your credit just stays in the deep freeze till the time comes that you may need to apply for credit for something. And then you and go you to the... recommend this over the credit protection oh, this is that you can buy. Yeah, a credit, credit protection is like a very poor imitation of a burglar alarm. Credit freeze locks the burglar out for as long as you have the freeze in place. So one is, one is um, to call it ironclad and foolproof would be overselling it, but it's close to that category where these uh, monitoring plans and the alerts and all that, they're just window dressing. They're not quite a joke, but almost. Well, I think I'll give it a try. All right. Now, one thing, Thomas, you have got to be a good record keeper. Because if you ever lose your credit freeze codes, you are frozen out of your own credit. And the process to get you back into it takes time and is a pain. So you need to come up with that safe place. You print out your three secret codes and file them away somewhere in your house. And if you're the kind of person who's kind of flaky and you might lose those numbers, no matter how good credit freeze is, it wouldn't be good for you. You know, I'm a flake. Did you know that I'm a complete flake? Did you know that about me? I, I had not heard that. Okay, I am I am really a flakeazoid. So with something like that, I'm very particular and meticulous about where I put something like that so I always know where it is. And you have to approach those credit freeze forms in that way. And at ClarkHoward.com, Thomas, I walk you through step-by-step how to do a credit freeze in your state. Follow me at Facebook.com slash ClarkHoward. Our web address, Clark.com. When you got a question for me, go Clark.com slash ask. Terry's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Terry. Hi, Clark. How's it going? Great, thank you. You're going on a cruise in Alaska? Exactly. 35th wedding anniversary this summer. We're going uh, to take the Alaskan cruise. Well, that'll be so great. Do you go out of Vancouver and then uh, back out of and then terminate in Whittier or something, or what do you do? Exactly. Whittier, and then we're going to make our way to Anchorage, and then I've got to figure out a way to get home. It's a long swim. Yeah, it's definitely it's a it's a pain because you're going to go into Vancouver out of Anchorage. Right. Ooh. All right. I'm going to make a, a weird suggestion to you to lower the price of the airfare. Does the price matter a lot? It is. I'm seeing five seventy nonstop. One person, one way from from there back home. That's a pretty decent chunk of change that's a fair amount one way you might lower the price but it does require some inconvenience is if you fly into seattle and home from anchorage 
that may get you what's called an uh, it's called an open jaw round trip. You don't have to know that. That's just what it is in the lingo of the travel industry. Mm-hmm. And that combination going into Seattle out of Anchorage may get you a significantly lower total airfare cost than you looking at a one way into Vancouver and a one way from Anchorage back to your home. All right, well, specifically, what I wanted to try to do is monitor the, the cost of that, of that trip. The, the, one, the one way from Anchorage, I have no idea if, if that's a good price or if that's a low price or a high price. Well, anytime have, you look at a one-way fare, the fares tend to get pricier. Uh-huh. And the, the way to know how good or bad that price would be is start by pricing a round trip from your hometown to Anchorage, and then see what half that round trip is. That'll tell you if the 570 is a little bit out of line or way out of line. Okay. Now, if you did the inconvenience I'm talking about flying into Seattle and home from Anchorage, there is both a bus service and a train that goes from Seattle to Vancouver because so many people do that. Because the airfares tend to be a lot higher flying on the U.S. side of, board, of the border than flying on the, to the Canadian side. And then you have the added bonus, if you go a day earlier, of getting to sightsee in Seattle, which is a great town. Have you ever been to Seattle? We have not. I love Seattle. So that would be a way of potentially saving yourself money and adding a really nice feature onto your cruise. So you said it's a train. I can get, get tickets on a train from Seattle to Vancouver. Yeah. And Krista, you did the train or the bus? When you... We did the train. It was beautiful. So uh, Krista did exactly that thing, flying into one out of the other to get, and then... We flew in and out of Seattle. Oh, you did? And we took the train both ways. It was great. Oh, you did it both ways. It was okay. just cheaper that way. All right. But for you, doing the into Seattle out of Anchorage may save you enough dollars that you'll that you'll look at it as oh we get the bonus of going to seattle and we save all this money and that's why we'll convince ourselves to do do it that way instead of the way we were thinking right and by the way you may be able to generate one of those things i called an open jaw round trip into vancouver out of anchorage and so if you go to something like hipmunk or kayak and try to put in the, they call it like a multi-city journey, you may get a fare that will lower that anchorage back home by a lot by including the Vancouver segment as part of it. Okay, that's great. Well, have a wonderful time, and I forgot to tell you, make sure on your way into Vancouver, however you get to Vancouver, that you build in one day of pad to get there. Because if you miss the beginning of the cruise, the cruise line doesn't care why. You're the one who missed it, and you, at your own expense, have to get to the next port of call. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. We're already planning to do that. All right. Well, I hope it's a a wonderful, you said, 35-year anniversary? 35-year anniversary this summer. Well, hope the next 35 years are equally as fantastic. You can go to ClarkHoward.com and post a question for me on Ask Clark. And then we scatter them out through the show, 
answering your posts. And Joel, who do you have an Ask Clark from? Clark, we had a question from Alex. He says, when shopping for cars, I'm always pointing to the MSRP. Why don't they show me the cost instead of the MSRP? And why do dealers and retailers treat it always as the base price? So manufacturer suggested retail price is the only marker figure that can really be used in the car business because no two dealers have anything like the same invoice cost. Even if they show you what's known as the invoice, it's a fake number. There will be dealers that say, we sell 1% over invoice or whatever. But the real cost that a dealer pays is based on the volume of that dealer, whether they hit certain incentives or sales targets, and other special funds that the manufacturer will make available to a dealer. So dealers get what's known as, sometimes they'll get what's known as holdback money, is one expression for one of the forms of money they'll get, and then various incentive payments that can be a substantial sum. That's why a high-volume car dealer can potentially sell their new vehicles at below their supposed invoice price because they're making so much money from all the other funds. Here's my plan, though. Don't ever worry about any of that. All you do when you're looking for a new vehicle is you're negotiating with multiple dealers on the price they'll sell it to you for. Don't worry about how much off of MSRP or how much over cost or under cost or at cost or any of that stuff. The only cost that matters in your wallet is what will they sell you the vehicle for. So you put dealers into competition with each other for the exact make and model you want and the colors you'll accept with the options you require. And then they're into a situation with a buyer who they know they're going to have to, in order to get the sale, provide the best deal. And all your negotiating should be done from your own home, your own computer, because you maintain the upper hand, you maintain the leverage if you're negotiating from your own home in your own computer, not in their store. Another thing, a lot of car dealers will add on junk fees known as packs, like uh, documentation fees and things like that. You hear that kind of stuff, that's your signal to exit stage right. But more important, when you're negotiating, you negotiate, make sure that any price you're quoted includes all extraneous fees. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Clark.com is our website. And if you happen to be joining today's show late, go to Clark.com slash on demand where you can catch up on anything you've missed. 
Music is something that means so much to many people and means very little to me. I've been very happy with Pandora's free music service on my smartphone, and I only use it to run. It helps my the the tunes of the songs help my cadence running, help me keep up some speed as I run, as I fatigue when I run. And well, to call what I do running is probably a bit of an exaggeration. I call it my waddle down the street. But anyway, that's my only connection to music. And then I listen in my car. My car has internet-connected radio that comes free with the car. It's a service called, it's called, not Sketcher, what's it called? Something, I forget. Stitcher, is that what it's called? Something like that. And uh, so I have my own, basically my own stations I've built and that's how I listen to music. And again, music, Stitcher, right? Music is not a high priority for me, but for other people, it really is. And so we have a family membership for the Spotify Premium. So it's $15 a month for five family members to use it. And you have unlimited music exactly like you want. You can download music for offline listening. You build your library as you wish. And it's an enormous crowd pleaser in my family. And Spotify has something like, I think it's 40 million paying users now. And the whole thing of listening for free, like I do, particularly with the Pandora when I waddle, is that I'm a freeloader. I mean, they don't really earn any amount of meaningful money from the ads that run. And the artists and composers feel like, They don't get any real money. And so likely the future is going to be paying services. And Pandora has launched its premium product, which is 10 bucks a month. That's what Apple is. That's what um, Spotify is for the premium for one person. But the real deals are going to be for families, like Apple's family version, Spotify's premium family version this is where the action is going to be just as with cell phone plans where it's all about multiple users being on one plan joel has put together a deal for cell phones that you've got 10 users and you pay 200 dollars a month for 10 people that's right 20 dollars a month a person it's pretty ridiculous yeah so uh, my plan is Works out to be $31 a person, so Joel's got me beat by $11, but mine's got unlimited data for everybody. You don't have that. But Joel's always spending less money than I am. But you're going to find more and more with technology that the deals are going to the groups. I think about the new television service, uh, YouTube TV, that's $35 a month, that it's designed to be shared by up to six people for the one $35 a month membership fee. And the reason that everybody's going to these great deals for groups is because it makes something what they call in business sticky, that you're less likely to switch away from whatever service you're using when multiple people are together on a single account. So I know the deals can be really alluring, really attractive when you get the group bundle. But just remember, 
it's much easier to get into one of those group discount plans than it ever is to get out. And the music industry, learning from others, is going clearly that way as well. Judy joins us with a question that has been a real hassle for people. How are you, Judy? I'm just fine, Clark. Thank you. And thank you for taking my call. Certainly. So this is not you, though, we're asking about. This is a friend of yours? It's a friend of mine. He uh, was laid off back in September, and he's been unsuccessful in finding new employment. And one of the biggest obstacles is when you apply online to big companies that in the online application process, you get so far into it, and then all of a sudden, they want your social. Well, so we've tried everything we can think of to get around it, not at, not putting it in, and it won't accept it, put in all zeros, all nines, whatever, and won't take it. And he says, I'm not putting my Social Security number out there. And I said, I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. I said, they shouldn't ask you for that until they're getting ready to hire you. Yeah, I it's a, it's a terrible, terrible decision on the part of any corporation in an initial online application to require your social security number one reason in particular is corporations are then opening themselves up to lawsuits at at the inevitable point that they have a breach of their employment hiring system because think about how much information it's a mother load of information for the uh, criminal rings if they get your name address work history prior addresses social security number date of birth they got everything on you to engage in full bore identity theft so it's laziness on the part of corporate america to that early and a screening process for hires or potential hires to require the social security number and i can't believe that the HR lawyers that big companies consult would not have advised companies away from doing it. And so for your friend, this is terrible because all he's trying to do is apply for work. But I will tell you this, applying for work with big companies is likely a waste of his time anyway. Hiring by big companies, in fact, big companies, if you look back over the last, I guess it's two decades, Overall net employment with big companies in the United States is smaller than it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago. They're not where the jobs are. And your friend would be much better served looking for jobs with little companies no one's ever heard of. Well, he did that with one local company. It's a local-based company here in Mobile, and they ask him that too. I I would be very nervous giving that, but that's one small local company that was asking willy-nilly for social security number early in a process but i would one idea what kind of work did your friend do prior he worked for a company another local based company that does medical they go into hospitals and set up software programs for them to use in every department in a hospital be it dietary x-ray scheduling things like that so he's a he's a techie, a computer kind of guy? Computer kind of guy, yeah. Well, well, you know, that's an area that some of the greatest hiring has been going on in that area. Do you think there may be a problem with not enough jobs like that in Mobile? Well, we have this other company that he applied online for that wanted it. It's the same company that's their competitor. 
he ended up just walking into the office and handing his uh, resume. I said, I'm not sure that was a smart thing to do. No, no, I think that's okay, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about the wider issue because I'm, uh, you know, as far as giving the Social Security number, I'm with him all the way. I'm dealing with the fact that he's been unemployed for such a long period of time. I'm more focused on how we're going to get him working again. Exactly. So um, I think he needs to beat the bushes if, if medical and software is his area of expertise. He's got to look for the little small companies that are growing in that field and apply to them directly and ignore all the big name companies in medical. Okay. So um, I'm really sorry he's been through a lengthy period of unemployment. I'm glad you brought to the table again the silliness of companies with online apps wanting somebody on faith to pop in their social security number. It's wrong. Jason joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jason. Hey, Clark. How's it going? Great. Thank you, Jason. How can I serve you? I just had a quick question about a collection company that's, um, you know, I'm trying to pay off a debt and I'm trying to understand um, there's a corporate uh, available fee that's showing up on the bill that's $250. A corporate what so, fee? It's called a corporate advance balance, and it's $250, and that's on top of the principal balance. Well, are you being contacted by the company itself attempting to collect a debt well, was, that you owe? At one time, it was a um, debt, co- debt consolidation. Okay. So I put a bunch of different credit cards in through one company, and that company since closed down, and another company I must have took on the debt. Okay. So I asked. So so is it is it the successor company or is it a collection agency that has bought the debt? Successor company. Okay. So you're dealing with the company itself. So they're just making up uh, administrative fee or administrative charge. And the weird part was is I asked for a payoff first through their online website, and I um, it 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 looked funky to me. So I called and asked for a um, a payoff quote, and they mailed it to me, and. I have two different things going on. One, they say it's insurance for $250, and then on a different statement, it says corporate advances, $250. All right, now let me tell you some background on this. The people you did the loan with were a hidden operation of one of the nation's four largest banks. Okay. When, they got in, when the big banks got in financial trouble, this, it was a high-risk lending operation of them. And it was spun out and kicked out to the new operator. The records are, who knows how accurate any of the records are. It is a successor corporate entity that if you look online, the complaints about them number, I would think at this point, in the tens of thousands of people who say they can't ever get straight information from them. There's a Facebook page... There's a Facebook page just now, Joel has pulled up for me, that shows, uh, gosh, thousands of people with complaints similar to yours. So there's no way to avoid it. I have to pay the charge. No, 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 no. That isn't what I'm telling you at all. I'm telling you that they're the gang that can't shoot straight. Okay. And one of the things people complain about with them is that because of the financial troubles of the big bank that owned them, the spinoff, the new operation, all that, that the balances are suspect, the amounts they say people owe. So, okay. no, you don't just pay it because they say that's what you owe. When did 
you stopped paying on this debt. How long well, ago? I never, I never stopped paying. Um, it was just, it was a quite large amount, and I, I was in a bad habit of paying the minimum balance. Okay. Uh, I was very young. I accumulated a high amount of debt. All right, so then um, why, would, why would you owe various administrative charges if you never went delinquent on this? That's what I, I have no idea. All right, well, that probably, you're probably one of the people who's ended up with suspect balances. So you okay. would like to pay it off. You have, have you received a full schedule showing all payments you've ever made from them? No, I have not. Okay, you write them by certified mail. Say that you that there's too much confusion about the amount they say you owe. You want a full historical record of your balance and payments over the years this loan has been outstanding. Okay. And also at the same time, put on there that you're copying the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and file a complaint against this lender with the CFPB, cfpb.gov. You are not somebody who's who's defaulted on a debt. You're somebody trying to pay a debt, and you should be treated with respect, and you should only be required to pay what you actually owe. Now, during the interim, should I just continue to make the monthly payment? Make the monthly payment, okay. and Very then good. ultimately, somebody will dig in, and they will give you a real amount of money that you owe that you should feel confident in, and then you pay them. Very good. Thank you so much, Clark. All right, best to you. Our number on the Clark Howard Show, 877-87-CLARK. We're going to turn to an Ask Clark at ClarkHoward.com. Joel, who do we have an Ask Clark from? Clark, this one's from John. He says, I've often heard you talk about buying term life as opposed to whole, but what if I did get a whole life policy? I've got one that's 25 years old, has a cash value of $50,000. What should I do with it? Once a whole life policy gets past about year 12 to 15, depending on the insurer and the policy, it's usually a great idea to keep it, particularly if your insurer has mutual in its name you're getting ownership benefit of being an owner of the insurer in addition to owning the policy. But at the very least, almost certainly, it's worth it for you to stay in that whole life policy because of the number of years you have in it. But if you want to verify that, you can go to a service. I recommend you check it out, evaluatelifeinsurance.org. Follow me at facebook.com slash clarkhoward. Our web address, Clark.com. When you got a question for me, go Clark.com slash ask. Ann is with us. Hello, Ann. How are you? I'm fine today. How are you? Great. Ann, you are rich. Yes, I am. How much did you win? Oh, I just won $1,500,000. Wow. And all you yeah. had to do was wake up today and you won one point five. Yep, courtesy a, of Google. Really? Yes. <laughs> so, so now Google is being generous. They have all these billions and billions and billions of dollars they don't know what to do with, so they've decided a million and a half at a time to hand it out, huh? Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> so this was an email that said, call now, or what was the pitch when you got the email saying you won the one and a half million? It was very official looking. You notice from Google Corporations, and uh, when I clicked on it, there was a um, 
Uh, you have just won $1,500,000 from a contest that you had entered. And then when you open the PDF... Uh-oh, uh-oh, you opened the PDF? I opened the PDF, but I didn't do anything else. And then I went back into my computer to make sure that there was no strange boogie things attached. The, the catch in the PDF was all the information that they wanted. And then the first thing that clued me that it was a scam was the fact that the logo, the Google logo, you could tell had been cut and taped. Well, let me tell you, I am so glad that you were skeptical because this is completely bogus. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage you to run an antivirus on your computer just to make sure that they didn't put on some kind of program that's going to cause mischief for you. Okay, I'm doing that now. Because this is, this is uh, sadly, not a million and a half dollars coming your way. If you get the email that Ann did, just delete the thing. Thank you, Ann. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director. But I also love making people open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd I'd never really come across them in bad ways it was always even when I said hello he never seemed to speak back to you he was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it the British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican I'm Rita Foley